Welcome to Episode 7 of the Inside Elections Podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, how will the Republican search for a new speaker affect the fight for the House majority? What's next in California with a newly appointed senator? And how much is a kilo of gold worth and other issues driving the New Jersey Senate race? Here we go. I'm Nathan Gonzalez, and I enjoyed watching the Seahawks defeat the Giants in New Jersey's 9th District, just across the river from New York City. I'm sorry, Jacob, I had to bring it up. Uh, I don't even know what you're talking about. Giants who? <laughs> Daniel Jones who? Um, I was in New York, not New Jersey. I'm Jacob Rubashkin, um, and I was in New York's uh, 7th District this past weekend for uh, a lovely wedding of two good friends of mine. And I'm Erin Covey, and I did not leave the district this weekend at all, but I am leaving tomorrow to head down to Congressman Jeff Van Drew's district, also known as Long Beach Islands. Well, that should be clear. I was just watching the game on TV, <laughs> but we have, <laughs> we have we have managed the three of us. We have managed to cover a very narrow swath of the country in in the, in the northeast corner. But that's okay. We'll we'll end up talking about a lot about California and other parts of the country uh, in the, in the rest of the podcast. Yeah, our lives revolve around the Acela corridor. <laughs> There we go. Oh, no. Now we're now we're just uh, fulfilling everything. Hey, now, to be clear, I'm, I'm a Northeast regional guy. Man of the people. Man of the people. Before we get to our three big stories, let's do some headlines. Aaron, go first. Yeah, so we had quite a few House candidates announce their campaigns this week. Um, it's the beginning of a new fundraising quarter. So this is like a typical time for candidates to start announcing. And one race that I'm really paying close attention to right now that has a new candidate is Pennsylvania's 8th district, um, which is voted for Trump at the presidential level for the past two election cycles, but is represented by a Democrat, Matt Cartwright. So this is probably going to be one of the most competitive races in the country. And Republicans landed a top recruit on Monday. His name is Rob Bresnahan, and he is a construction company CEO. So we'll see how this race develops. I don't believe he's officially announced, but I think he filed to run on Monday with the FEC. And I should point out that uh, Bresnahan's name, Aaron, you had it. It first appeared in the newsletter uh, at the beginning of June. So this name is not new to people who are yeah. subscribing to the newsletter, uh, but now he's finally getting close to an official announcement. Uh, Jacob, what do you have? So Democrats got a top recruit in a difficult district for them out on Long Island. Uh, chemistry professor Nancy Goroff, who was the 2020 nominee for the previous version of this seat against Republican Lee Zeldin, is running again. Uh, the district was redrawn uh, since that 2020 race to be slightly more favorable uh, to Democrats. And there's a good chance that if uh, Democrats are able to redraw the New York maps again, which they may be pending a, an ongoing court case, 
they will make this district even more favorable uh, to Democrats accruing to uh, Goroff's favor. Uh, the incumbent is Republican Nick LaLotta. He's a freshman. Uh, and while the first district may have voted very narrowly for Joe Biden at the top of the ticket in the 2020 election, down ballot, uh, Suffolk County, a lot of Long Island uh, still votes considerably more uh, Republican. And that's why uh, it's still a bit of a challenge for Goroff, uh, presuming she wins the primary and and gets to run in the general. And we'll continue to come back to you on redistricting updates for, for New York. But this is a target, a Democratic target, even in its current uh, the district in its, in its current form. Um, former President Donald J. Trump showed up in a courtroom uh, this earlier this week in a $250, $250 million civil case that also threatens Trump's ability to do business in New York. I think the couple of key things to point out is that he did not have to show up, but he did show up in person. I don't think he he's not hiding from his legal troubles. He's actually trying to leverage them, I think, uh, politically. And the media coverage was exhaustive. I think that and it was just a, a couple seconds clip of the courtroom that was played over and over and over again. I think this is a sample of what we could see next year when Trump might be uh, standing trial and standing trial in one of the criminal cases against him and how difficult it's going to be for can other candidates or the parties to drive any sort of message in an environment when everything is focused on Trump. The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. Uh, GSPM offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules that are designed for the working professional. For those of you loyal listeners to the podcast, you know that they're not just a sponsor, but I'm also a graduate. And one of the things I appreciated was getting to learn from actual from people that were actually working in campaigns. I remember one of the most difficult classes was uh, a fundraising class that was taught by Jack Oliver, who at the time was President George W. Bush's top fundraiser. Uh, and so it was it was legit. <laughs> and, and that's one thing I appreciated. So uh Take just a few seconds, click on the link, and check out what the GSPM program has to offer. First, let's dive into the Republicans' removal of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. On this vote, the yeas are 216. The nays are 210. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. That was from the House floor on Tuesday night, a historic moment as Florida Congressman Matt Gates and seven other House Republicans ousted McCarthy from the speakership via a motion to vacate the chair. North Carolina Congressman Patrick McHenry is effectively the interim speaker after being at the top of McCarthy's secret list of successors. And now the House is in recess until next week when Republicans are supposed to choose someone new. Without knowing who the next speaker will be, how will this impact the fight for the House majority? And I should say that we're having this conversation on Wednesday morning. Uh, there could be some developments. But back to the initial question, who, uh, how will this affect the House majority, even though we don't know who the next speaker is going to be? 
Well, Nathan, someone I know who's very smart always likes to say that the the worst time to evaluate the future impact of events is while they're currently happening. Uh, and I think we are still very much in the thick of it. Uh, obviously, here on, on Wednesday, uh, there's an interim speaker. I guess they're doing a forum next week on Tuesday where the, the various candidates will duke it out in private. And then they're aiming for a vote on Wednesday. Um in, in private, meaning there will probably be some members tweeting about it, but that's okay. We'll see. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, of course, uh, through themselves or, or, or various journalists. Um, but, you know, I, I, look, I, I think that it, it just kind of, it, it, if anything, it helps Democrats perhaps drive home kind of a, a dysfunctional Congress message in a lot of these districts, um, especially, of course, in those 18 Biden districts that they're targeting uh, but I, I talk to a lot of Democratic uh, political operatives, and, and time and time again, the word dysfunction gets thrown around a lot, that it's less kind of a specific kind of policy that the Republican majority is pushing and more just that they've demonstrated that they they really struggle to govern, that they really struggle to pass anything or, or lead effectively without Democratic votes. And, and so I think we, we are going to see, um, you know, uh, a focus perhaps uh, – on, on this episode as as just another example of of why you know uh, you should vote for a Democrat as opposed to a Republican who who is leaving things in chaos. Yeah, and you can also make a direct comparison between the Democratic majority, which was similarly narrow of they had a five vote majority before Republicans took back the House. Um, and you can kind of compare the dysfunction that is there now versus um, the level of dis dysfunction before. And so that's a really easy argument, I think, for Democrats to make. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how this impacts um, some of the specific vulnerable Republicans who are running for re-election. Like I think we've already seen a couple of folks like Mike Lawler in New York. He represents a super competitive district and he's been talking about um, consequences for the eight Republican members who voted to oust McCarthy. So I think you'll probably see a little bit more of that from vulnerable Republicans who are trying to kind of separate themselves from the chaos and put the blame on the further right faction of their conference. Yeah, I saw an interview last night on CNN, uh, Congressman Carlos Jimenez, a Republican from South Florida. He was talking about blaming it on 3% uh, of the Republican conference and 100% of Democrats. I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Republicans are trying to to pin it on Democrats that they should have saved their speaker. I, I think that's a, that's a bit of a stretch. But what I think, if we re rewind all the way to 2022, <laughs> the most recent midterm elections, where Republicans had an opportunity to win big, right? Voters wanted change. They were not satisfied with the status quo. And the status quo was Democrats in power. But ultimately, in many of the key races, Republican or uh, those swing voters looked to Republicans. They wanted an alternative and they didn't like what Republicans were offering. And I think that this has the potential to feed into that. Um, are Republicans up to the job? And we're not talking about a high bar. I think that people have set for politicians and yet Republicans are at risk I think of distracting from uh, really what they want to be talking about, which is. President Biden or or, or uh, the state of the economy or the state of the southern border. And instead, 
it's Matt Gates in front of the Matt Gates in front of the cameras and Republicans, you know, they can't figure out how to, how to, uh, you know, elect their own leader in a, in a body where they have more members. Yeah. I think there was a Gallup poll from the other day found that uh, voters give Republicans a greater advantage on who would be better dealing with dealing with economic issues uh, than any time in in Gallup's history of tracking, uh, which is really quite incredible and speaks to perhaps a a natural advantage that they might have in this upcoming election cycle. Uh, But they they just continue to let themselves get dragged into these, um, you know, but frankly, petty fights uh, between the various factions of their own membership that, like you said, distract from. Uh, some of the more favorable issues. Honestly, I think, though, the biggest impact here is like, uh, you know, in in a couple weeks when the continuing resolution runs out, uh, they've got to fund the government. And uh, if it was so difficult to fund the government for more than 45 days with McCarthy as speaker, now with this power vacuum and, you know, who knows who's going to step in to fill it, uh, what does that look like um, when when the money runs out. And I think that ultimately the, the impact of a government shutdown, potentially a very long one, um, might be uh, might might play more of a role relative to 2024 than like this specific fight over who gets to be speaker. And one of the, one of the things that I've been thinking about also in the, the hours after, McCarthy was removed. There was a talk about the fundraising and how great of a, a fundraiser he has been and how that will be difficult for Republicans to replace. And and I I, I think that uh, at the risk of McCarthy people being mad at me, uh, it's also it's a function of the role in the job. I mean, when was the last time we had a speaker that was not a good fundraiser? I mean, I, I think that uh, whoever steps into that role will have an opportunity to raise a considerable amount of money and help Republicans. That being said, if uh, Republicans nominate someone or you know, Jim Jordan of Ohio ends up being the speaker, there could be some donors who are, who are more standoffish and wait and see. But if they can get someone more mainstream, I think that person will be able to raise a lot of money because they will be the speaker of the House of Representatives. I think that's right. I think Scalise has already shown himself to be a very strong fundraiser. And, you know, uh, your your Jim Jordan point is interesting, though. I think that ties back kind of to Aaron, what you were saying. You know, I don't think any of those Biden district Republicans would relish the opportunity to to vote for Jim Jordan as speaker, let alone, you know, Donald J. Trump, who has at least a few members, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Troy Nels, Potentially Matt Gates, we'll see. He nominated him last time. Um, you know, Trump is not going to be Speaker of the House, but uh, you know, I think it underscores the the potential for for a tough vote or an uncomfortable vote uh, from those more moderate members of the caucus, depending on uh, who the party nominates. Yeah, and I think Tom Emmer's name is still floating out there. I know he said that he would support Scalise, but if Scalise's bid to be speaker falls apart, he's probably still in the wings. And so it would be interesting to see. I assume that as the former NRCC chairman, he would probably have a lot of success with fundraising. It would probably be definitely more palatable than a Jim Jordan to some of these Biden district Republicans. Um but yeah, ultimately, I feel like it's we don't want to go too far with speculation before we actually um, have this race in motion next week. 
Yeah. And, and ultimately, what does the uh, the agreement, what kind of compromises does the next speaker have to make in order to get the job? Right. And then uh, is do the, the current rules of the motion to vacate the chair or the threshold of it being a member, uh, one member, does that remain in place? And do Republicans go through this again? I mean, we're still more than a year from the election, but are, are they going to oust the, the next speaker over the course of the next 12 months. And then it's, again, a distraction and, and some another news cycle or two that Republicans you know, don't, aren't talking about uh, what Democrats are doing wrong. They're just trying to figure, get their own house in order. Yeah. I mean, that'll be interesting. It's seeing like the individual reactions from the eight members who voted to oust McCarthy. It really seems like a lot of it was personal with him and feeling like they couldn't personally trust him and that he had disrespected them. And so I don't, I wonder if, um, if it had just been Scalise who made those exact same concessions, if he would have been in a different position and if the future speaker is going to have to make more concessions than McCarthy or just the fact that he is not McCarthy will, or, or she is not McCarthy will be enough. Right. Yeah. I mean, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York has to be at least mentioned as yeah. a potential possible uh, successor to to being speaker. And we haven't talked about the one potential policy implication with this is uh, the U.S. aid to Ukraine and how that could be. Uh, does the next speaker have to uh, promise not to deliver any few, any more money to Ukraine? Uh, because there is there is a lot more consensus on the Republican side to cutting off that aid than there is for getting rid of McCarthy. I mean, the McCarthy getting rid of McCarthy was a very small group of Republicans that wanted to do that, but there's broader support uh, against uh, more Ukraine money. So I think that that's a, um, that's something to to keep an eye on down the road. So we don't know who the next speaker will be. We also don't know whether California will have an open Senate seat or not. Political history is also being made today in th in the Senate, where Democrat LaFonza Butler is sworn in to fill the remaining term of the late D Senator Dianne Feinstein. Butler is the only black woman currently serving in the Senate and the first openly LGBTQ person ever to represent California in the chamber. That was local KTLA coverage of Governor Gavin Newsom's appointment of LaFonza Butler to the vacant seat left behind after the death of Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. So Newsom had previously said that he would appoint a black woman and someone who wouldn't run for a full term. But the latter part of that is in question right now. And meanwhile, Democratic members Adam Schiff, Katie Porter and Barbara Lee are all still running. So Jacob has been covering this race um, and it's already a messy three way situation. So this throws yet another interesting dynamic into the race. Um, but Jacob, if, if Butler runs for reelection, how do you think that's going to affect the rest of the field? It'll certainly shake things up and and what has been a fairly stable contest for the better part of this year between Schiff, Porter, and Lee. There are a number of other candidates running, um, but those three are the big ones. Uh, you know, if Butler were to jump in, she would be the incumbent senator for sure. Uh, she would have some level of institutional backing, I think, that that comes from being the incumbent. But again, she's not a politician. She was not elected. Uh, she's she's there because of of one person's decision, Gavin Newsom. And and she's not a, a, a known figure. Right. California is a big state. 
Uh, she was an important person both in the labor movement and then, you know, in the political sphere. But the, your rank and file voters just aren't aware of who she is. Uh, and, 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 you know, she's running against she would be running against two of the top fundraisers in the Democratic Party. Uh, so I think she'd certainly be a factor, but I'm not quite sure that it would completely upend the, the broad contours of the race as they sit right now. Right. And I mean, like Adam Schiff has already locked down Nancy Pelosi's support. So it's not like there isn't institutional Democratic support that's already taking sides in this race. Um, but is there a chance that any of these three members of Congress would drop out of the race, potentially? It's always possible. Um, I think that, you know, uh, if if they thought that they couldn't win, right, I don't think any of these candidates are the kind of people that are would would put themselves through that for something they they really didn't believe that they could win at all. I think that at the moment, all three of these candidates believe that they can be the next senator um, and they are they are acting accordingly. Uh, and I just don't see the entrance of of a candidate like Butler as being so uh, you know deadly to any of these candidates' current position. Um, you know, Schiff and Porter are kind of tied in the polls for for that first place spot. Uh, Barbara Lee a little bit further behind. Um, but look, you know, this is kind of the 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 capstone of a very long career for Barbara Lee. She has often been kind of at the forefront of the progressive policy movement. Um, mm -hmm. It's been uh, this seat has been something she's wanted for a while. Uh, it's hard to see how she would drop down, even though, you know, she is still, um you know, trailing in, in the polls and in fundraising. And then Schiff and Porter, I think it's very difficult to to see how either of them uh, look at an unknown candidate who is starting out with zero dollars in the bank and, um, you know, get scared out of the race, frankly. Yeah. And Jacob, you had a one side note on Adam Schiff. He has so much money in his campaign account that he, what he gained $400,000 in interest in the last fundraising quarter, just on investing unused campaign money. <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, it's... that's what some of the top house fundraisers are raising in a quarter. And he's just getting that off investment interest. I actually, I went back and I, I crunched the numbers from Q2. So it's not an exact comparison, uh, but about, um, he raised, uh, he made more money just on interest than about two thirds of of House incumbents and uh, challengers uh, running for election in in twenty twenty four. So just wow. a, a stupendous amount of money uh, that he has at his disposal disposal to to run this campaign. And if we look quickly at each of them individually and try to think, well, why would they get out? I mean, Adam Schiff has a lot of money. Uh, also, an, an entry of another woman, another black woman into the race um, could be to his benefit. I mean, the Democratic Party in primaries, there has been a a push to support more women. But if you have three strong, credible women in the race, does that help someone like Schiff? Um, Katie Porter is interesting because uh, Democrats, the Democratic field to replace her um, is a little bit in, in question. And so you could see from a House perspective where Democrats may want her to come back and run for her district in Orange County, but that's not a compelling reason for her to actually do that right. unless she thinks she's going to get edged out. That's more from a party, from a party perspective. And, and Jacob, you mentioned Barbara Lee and then the reasons why this is important uh, to her and why, you know, why give up now, um, even though she, she didn't get that 
she didn't get that appointment. And we should say that, you know, this isn't uh, this isn't vulnerable, even though there's a lot of moving parts on the Democratic side. This is still not vulnerable from a for a Republican takeover, even though the majority is up for grabs and extremely narrow. This is not we don't consider this a a, a battleground, a battleground seat. Um, Jacob, can you walk through the timeline, though, a little bit on filing deadline, primary, but also uh, the party convention, to, what to watch for? So there are a couple of dates to keep in mind here uh, as it pertains to this primary. The first one is coming up just in a matter of days, and that's on October 13th. That's the deadline for candidates to register uh, with the state party if they want to seek the state party's endorsement at the uh, November convention. Now, this is not a, um, you know, this doesn't get you anything. not binding. It's not binding, right? It's not, you don't get to be the nominee if you're endorsed by the state party. And oftentimes the state party uh, has endorsed candidates that are more on the progressive side of, of the spectrum than some of the moderate, uh, more moderate candidates. Uh, endorsed candidates don't always go on to win their primaries, but it is uh, an indicator of support from, from a larger group of Democrats that, that can be very valuable. Uh, it's something that all three uh, of the current candidates, Schiff, Porter, and Lee, are seeking. Uh, if Lafonza Butler registers to receive or to seek the endorsement from the, the convention, that's a pretty good sign that she's going to try and run in her own right. Uh, the next milestone after that is the California filing deadline. Um, that's on December 8th. By that point, the convention will have already happened, right? That's the other thing. So um, we'll see how that shakes out. You've got the December 8th filing deadline. And then, of course, you've got the actual primary on March 5th, 2024, Super Tuesday, which is when California has moved its primary up to it used to be later in the summer. Um, and, and that, of course, is a top two primary California system of elections. All candidates run on the same ballot. Top two vote getters, regardless of party, uh, progress to the general election. So there's a good chance this general election in November could actually feature two Democrats running against each other for the Senate seat. Sticking with the Senate, uh, but moving to New Jersey, where some Democrats wish that was an open seat after Senator Bob Menendez <laughs> was indicted. Today I'm announcing that my office has obtained a three-count indictment charging Senator Robert Menendez, his wife Nadine Menendez, and three New Jersey businessmen, while Hanna, Jose Uribe, and Fred Davies for bribery offenses. The indictment alleges that Hanna, Uribe, and Davies provided bribes in the form of cash, gold, home mortgage payments, a low-show or a no-show job for Nadine Menendez, a Mercedes-Benz, and other things of value to the senator and his wife. So the Justice Department alleges that uh, senior New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez was at the center of a bribery and fraud scheme that included his wife, several local New Jersey businessmen, uh, and I'm saying businessmen with some quotes around it, and uh, <laughs> senior government uh, officials from uh, the country of Egypt. Uh, Menendez is accused of taking bribes, a car, cash, even gold bars, uh, in exchange for actions favorable to uh, those New Jersey businessmen and the Egyptian government, like helping increase aid to Egypt uh, despite a record of human rights concerns. Uh, he is alleged to have ghostwritten a letter on behalf of the Egyptian government 
for them to send to United States senators. Uh, and he also agitated against the appointment of a potential U.S. attorney in New Jersey who might have been unfavorable uh, to the, the businessmen that were friends with Menendez's wife. Uh, now, the senator maintains that he's innocent and is being politically prosecuted, uh, in part because he says, you know, the, the powers that be don't want to see a Latino uh, successful in the Senate. Um, and he wants to fight the charges. Uh, now, uh, you remember, this isn't the first time that Menendez has uh, faced federal indictment. In 2017, he actually walked free after uh, there was a mistrial um, in in uh, the prosecution of, of him on, on federal corruption charges that were pretty similar in, in scope to uh, what he's being accused of now. Uh, but in, in this cycle, unlike in 2017, 2018, he does have a credible primary challenger in uh, third district congressman Andy Kim. Now, for those of you who might be more normal uh, and have regular lives uh, and aren't aware, you should. What's one of the things that's different than the previous uh, indictment from years ago was that there are pictures, right? I mean, there are the uh, there are pictures of cash that was allegedly in the pockets of some monogrammed U.S. Senate jackets uh, that Menendez has. Pictures of gold bars in the indictment. One of my favorite parts in the in in the indictment is that Menendez allegedly Googled. Uh, how much is a kilo of gold worth? And now, and I Googled it myself. It's about $60,000 if you, uh, if you have a kilo of gold lying around the house, but it really, it, it is more provocative in the sense of the visuals that are accompanying this indictment. But, uh, but Aaron, what do you, what do you think of all this? I mean, it's cartoonish. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, it also happened like, Friday afternoon, which is always a great time for news to drop. And like seeing the initial reactions was really interesting. Like it took a while for the Democratic senators to start calling on him to resign. Initially, it was just Fetterman, which makes sense. John Fetterman um, and of Pennsylvania all... <laughs> of shorts and sweatshirt fame. <laughs> right. Um, clearly cared a little bit less about decorum <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, and then after that, you kind of saw the floodgates open and a long list of Democratic senators, inc including Gary Peters, who is the chair of the DSCC, um, the arm of the, the campaign arm of Senate Democrats have all called for him to resign. Um, but he's obviously defiant. Um, I think my main question right now is how many other ambitious New Jersey Democrats are going to jump in this race? Like Andy Kim got in very quickly, but I know there's been a couple of other names floating out there and I'm curious how likely it is that they're going to get in. Well, I think I saw, uh, Jacob, I'll let you clean up after I hopefully don't create too much of a mess, but uh, like Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill said that she wouldn't challenge Menendez, but I don't think it was very clear that if there ends up, somehow Menendez leaves or resigns and there's an appointment or he doesn't run for reelection. There's an open seat. I don't think Cheryl closed the, do the door in that situation, but Jacob, what are you seeing from these other members? Look, there are any number of ambitious Democrats in the state of New Jersey. It's a pretty democratic state and there's a strong bench that the party has built up since the 2018 uh, election. Uh, Andy Kim obviously saw an advantage in being the first mover, the first one out the gate. Uh, he raised about a million dollars just in his first week in the race, in the Senate race. Uh, he's also already a good fundraiser uh, in his House career. He raised uh, between seven and eight million dollars in each of his three House races over the last three cycles. 
Um, so certainly a formidable candidate to begin with. Uh, the other two names that come up a lot, of course, are Mikey Sherrill, uh, who comes from the northern part of the state. She's got a uh, decorated career as a, as a military helicopter pilot and uh, was one of those Democrats who flipped a Republican district in that 2018 cycle, along with Andy Kim. Uh, the other name there, Josh Gottheimer, who actually got there in 2016, flipping a Republican health district. Also a very strong fundraiser. Uh, both of those members of Congress, uh, the conventional wisdom is that they are more interested in running for governor in 2025 when that uh, race is an open seat because Governor Phil Murphy will be term limited uh, than they are running for Senate. Obviously, if the opportunity presented itself, especially if Menendez were to resign and Governor Murphy needed to make an appointment, you know, I think that might change the calculus, but both of them uh, so far have seen more open to running for, for governor than Senate. Uh, the other name that's out there, of course, is uh, Tammy Murphy, who is the wife of uh, Governor Phil Murphy. Uh, she has not run for office before, but obviously very well connected in political circles and has been fielding calls uh, about uh, seeking out this Senate seat uh, as well. And we need to put this in context of the larger fight for the Senate because New Jersey shouldn't be, it's not competitive. You know, it shouldn't be competitive. Biden, if he's a nominee, should the, the Democratic presidential nominee should win it easily. And yet this throws a bit of uncertainty into it uh, because if Menendez runs again, if he wins the primary, if he's the nominee again, Democrats will likely have to spend money in very expensive media markets in order to defend him because he is an incumbent. That is money that can't then be used in uh, for uh, seven or eight other more vulnerable Democratic senators who are running in competitive states or even states that Trump could win again. We're talking about Joe Manchin in West Virginia, John Tester in Montana, Sherrod Brown in Ohio. And yes, Menendez won re-election previously after being indicted, but uh, Jacob, I think you wrote that uh, Democrats had to spend $20 million in order to to help him in that effort in a race that didn't end up being close. But again, the money was the money was spent. And so this is not just an isolated an isolated incident. And it's also, I think, why you don't see Republicans telling Menendez he has to go or he has to resign because Republicans best chance of or any chance of having. Uh, winning in New Jersey is with Menendez on the ballot. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of things swirling, swirling around here. It's not limited to New Jersey. I think it was a little less than 20 million on the outside uh, money front. Uh, Menendez himself raised uh, close to 10 million in that race. And uh, I think it would be hard to see how he could raise any sort of money while he's currently facing these charges. Uh, so the money situation, certainly something Democrats would have to uh, spend a lot of time thinking about in, in that race. And how many kilos of gold, how many gold bars does it take to get to 20 million? No, I'm not, they told me <laughs> there would be no math question. in this. Break, break the rules on foreign contributions. If you tried to, uh, you know, uh, parlay that into, into some reserve campaign funds. And I wanted to say one thing as we, before we, we, uh, we wrap up this, this part of the, of the pod, uh, Andy Kim had there was a powerful moment on January 6th, uh, 2021, where in Congressman Kim returned to the Capitol and, and helped in some of the cleanup process. Now, 
you know, I, I try to, I know politicians can do things for, for political reasons, but I try to take everyone at give people the benefit of the doubt and, and at face value. And I just thought it was a powerful, you know, a powerful moment that, um, that, that he did that. And that'll, that'll at least stick in my mind for, for quite some time, but let's move on. And finally, our last segment, Look What I Found, where we talk about anything that we found. It doesn't have to be politics, could be sports, pop culture, anything. Erin, what did you find? So I found the cutest thing I have ever seen on a candidate's website, um, which is obviously a pretty low bar. (laughs) Um, But Amish Shah, who is a doctor and a state representative running for Congress in Arizona, saved the life of a kitten sometime last year, I believe, while he was out door knocking. And no one thought that this little guy, whose name is Mr. Flowerson, because he was found in a flower bed, was going oh to make goodness. it. But a veterinarian was able to nurse him back to health, and he's doing great. And the video of the whole story is on Shaw's website. So it's the cutest thing. I encourage you to look it up. And yeah, I'll be, I'll be writing more about this race <laughs> later next week. But as far as I know, that's like the most important um, development so far <laughs> is this real i mean we just talked about being skeptical <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty uh i mean it's we'll take it at face value we'll, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt i think that i think we got to move that to solid democratic right that's that i know yeah game, game, game over for david schweiker <laughs> solid <laughs> solid muteness <laughs> that's what that's what <laughs> um jacob what did you find so I found that one of my favorite childhood shows, uh, Iron Chef America, <laughs> you can tell what kind of kid I was, um, is available for streaming on the platform formerly known as HBO Max. Um, now that I'm a little older, I can more fully appreciate just how silly and ridiculous the the show and its premise and its uh, features were. Uh, but that doesn't stop me from marveling at the creativity Uh, and the skill of all the chefs who are featured there uh, duking it out in Kitchen Stadium under the watchful eye of, you know, the best food presenter out there, Alton Brown. (laughs) (laughs) I always preferred Iron Chef to, like, Chopped because it was a little less high stakes. Like, Chopped was stressful to watch, but Iron Chef was more fun. Iron Chef was really goofy. And, like, (laughs) they rebooted it on Netflix, and it just didn't have the same kind of goofiness. They took themselves too seriously, and it just didn't work. Yeah, that was a charm. I just can't get over it when you talk. You said, "As I'm getting older, like they're, they're rebooting, they're rebooting shows that are three years old." I don't know, like what is this? I, I grew up watching GI Joe on a TV where you had to turn a knob to change the channel. Like that's what I. This is. It's a little different. Uh, it's okay. I will embrace my my elderly role on this on this podcast. Um, senior, senior. There we go. Thank you. Little. Very. You're being kind. Uh, it's it's uh, wisdom in the in the gray hairs uh and maybe in trying to live in the past i found a new band called action adventure via my friend matt in california uh they describe themselves as chicago heavy pop punk uh and which is hits checks a lot of boxes for me uh, now i did just miss them a couple weeks ago apparently they were playing in baltimore I, so I didn't have the opportunity to ask them specifically which Chicago congressional district they lived in. So I'm not able to bring that to our podcast listeners. Uh, but anyway, but the band is, uh, it's, uh, they're super fun and I'm, I'm enjoying 
watching them as I edit your newsletter pieces. <laughs> yeah, you would need to have like their specific home address to narrow it yeah. down because yeah. <laughs> Chicago is gerrymandered in such a ridiculous way. Exactly, which would be so creepy. Like, yeah, I'm really into your band. Can you tell me specifically your address? I'm going to look it up on this app yeah. where, you, where you are. <laughs> that wouldn't be awkward at all. And that's all the time we have. We discussed how the Republican search for a new speaker will affect the fight for the House majority. And we took a fresh look at the moving parts in the California and New Jersey Senate races. Thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to those complex elections. Please go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to the bi-weekly newsletter. We've got individual subscriptions or we have group packages that are tailored for association and corporate packs. If you like this episode, please do all the things that would help us. Subscribe, uh, subscribe, leave a comment, put thumbs up on YouTube. Uh, if you didn't like today's episode, please email Giants quarterback Daniel Jones. We also wanted to thank our producers, Alan Tazinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and our associate producer, Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us again next time. <laughs> <laughs>